All right, all right. Looks like we've got a number of our main speakers here. With more to come, we'll be cycling in and out of people today, folks. We've got a lot of great speakers coming through. So I'm going to go ahead and just kind of give a basic layout of who we got speaking. No other experts exist on the Twitter world in any way, shape, or form than these folks. So I'm just really grateful to have all of you here. Can't thank you enough for coming. In no particular order, I'm just going to run through our list. Go ahead and plug something if you got something to plug after I introduce you. Otherwise, we'll get this thing started. So let's move on to our boy Fed Guy 12, Joseph Wang. He headed the trading at the Fed's open desk. He has a really good book called Central Banking 101, probably the best guy out there to explain the complexities of the Fed operations. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me. Up next, we got Darius Dale. Had a little bit of banter with him right at the beginning here. Founder and CEO of 42 Macro, the leading macro risk management advisor. Super honored to have you here, man. Been looking to have you on here for a while. How are you doing? Nah, man. Just uh, just plugging good vibes, dude. Absolutely. It's a blessing to be here, man. Appreciate you. Appreciation's all ours, man. Macro Al. Fed him before. We got him again. A great sub-stack on macro and a great podcast that's regularly updated. You know more about macro than, than hell, just about anyone. I know you've got a lot of views on recession and bonds, an expensive dollar, and I know you know a little bit about pizza. Welcome, man. How you doing? I would say by far my biggest skill is pizza. Macro. <laughs> <laughs> macro is just a side. But we're entering this Fed meeting with the, the spread between 10-year and two-year government bond yields at negative. 28 basis point. It's most more negative than before the great financial crisis. So let's see if Powell sends it to minus 50 tonight, or what is he going to say about the yield curve slope? Perfect. Thank you so much, man. man. Mr. Blonde Macro, man, got you back as well. You've always been a strong voice on macro. You were the first to speak about the pullback and growth in 2021 summer. And spot on in the execution thereof. You also got a great sub stack that everyone should subscribe to. What's going on, man? I'm good, Will. How you doing? We're all chilling, man. Just ready to start getting some info out to folks. Thanks for coming. No problem. Thanks for having me. Might cut out again there. Sorry about that, guys. We've got Christian here again, man. CEO of Tribeca Trade Group, great handle on micro aspects of macroecon, can speak about pretty much anything regarding food prices, oil companies, and more. Happy to have you as always, Christian. How are you doing? Hey, uh, very good. Happy Fed Day. And uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, looks like Fed Fund Futures pricing in the full 75 basis points in September, which not we don't have another meeting until september uh, another 60 basis points priced in so um i like to see where um where these things are at in terms of expectations and um i like that there's uh you know a hawkish tone going into it perfect thank you and that's actually right where we're gonna start first we got brad freeman here as well he's a regular appearance love having you here again man how are you doing it's great to be here. Flattered to be in this uh, in this panel of titans. Really, I mean, the the, the credentials are, are making me feel a little bit intimidated. But but I will do I will do my absolute best to keep up. Uh, oh man, just, tell just, me about it. <laughs> just, just excited to dig in about this really weird no man's land we're in with with really high levels of inflation, some 
some break-even inflation levels looking a little bit better on a five and 10 year basis. But then things like, just to give you a data point and then we'll move on because uh, this is just supposed to be an introduction. Philadelphia Fed manufacturing at negative 12.3 versus negative 2.5 expected last week. So so yuck there. So so really weird, weird times where um, in, the, in, the, in this world of two Fed mandates, one still looks pretty good um, in terms of employment, although showing a lot of cracks and we see layoff news every single day. Um, and, and then the other one in terms of inflation, I mean, with employment still looking as good as it does, it seems as though the Fed is rightfully focused on taming inflation. So I'm sure that's what we're going to be talking about and, and really excited to dig in. And again, flattered to be included with all these people. Yes, sir. Thanks for coming. Last but not least in our current lineup before we start cycling folks through, Northman Traders, Fen, another great newsletter writer, another great trading service. And I hear you kind of butt heads with the idea of kind of help operations run these days. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate being on with everybody else here. This is a great group. And uh, confession, I like to see the Fed sweat. And I guarantee you they're sweating this because they're trying to bring down inflation at the same time without breaking anything. And I think it's a really challenging task for them. Always love to have that viewpoint, man. So speaking of sweating, let's talk about the rate height. First of all, I just kind of want to start there. And we can actually start with you, Sven. Uh, last time we all spoke, CPI was at a record-breaking 9.1%. Uh, CME's FedWatch has a 75, 76 chance for 75 BPS right now. Uh, I know that was kind of starkly different from prior when we last spoke. There's a much higher chance for a 100 BPS hike. Uh, so how are you feeling right now? Sven, how are you feeling right now about you know the 75% the chance for a 75 BPS hike? Well, I think that's pretty much locked in. I mean, the, 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 the scare on 100 basis points was immediately whistled back by several Fed speakers. As you know, prior to Fed quiet periods, we have them speaking multiple times a day trying to manage expectations. And I think they got scared a little bit by 100 basis points as well. I think the, the real big important piece here is the bond market, the yields and specifically. We saw a run towards 3.5% in June. As you know, back then, it was also high correction time in bear markets in, in the S&P and everything else was falling apart. The market is already sending us a message, a larger message here, and I think we just need to be all aware. There's no way, no how, the Fed can raise rates to a, a 3.5, 3.8, or 4% effective Fed funds rate without bringing about a major recession. A, the debt construct will not allow us. We're about 125% debt to GDP now. The market already confirmed that as the 10-year was going to 3.5%, which was above the 2018 highs in October of 3.2%. Back then, too, the market screamed. The 10-year reversed. The Fed at that time, as you may recall, in October 2018, was still on their mission of quantitative tightening, being on autopilot and setting expectations for four rate hikes in 2019. The 10-year then already reversed. It reversed as markets corrected deep into December. And that was a signal back then. It was a signal that was also ignored by the banks initially because Goldman, JP Morgan, these type of banks had also still four rate hikes penciled in as late as December of 2018. So the bond market back then had it right. And guess what? The Fed flip-flopped. What we're seeing now is interesting in this context because the 
the 10-year temporarily got above that 2018 level. And remember, back then, we had $9 trillion less debt. We've added so much debt, COVID and everything else, in the past few years. It is it is a natural barrier in terms of, in my view, how far the Fed can go without breaking anything. So that the 10-year has now reversed and markets have rallied as a result of that reversal, which was a big relief to markets, it sends a signal. And if you look at the 10-year, you can even make the case for some sort of topping pattern, which is completely unconfirmed. But it's reversed dramatically. And that signals something. It's maybe signals what we saw in 2018, that again, the market is leading the Fed. And it's telling the Fed that maybe from a market perspective, which now seems completely unfathomable, but it was back then too in 2018, that maybe from a market perspective, the, the tightening cycle, which may sound radical, is already over and the Fed will be forced to pause at some point. Yeah, they're still going to do 75 basis points now. And maybe depending on how inflation data comes out in or August and September, they may, and this may be a policy mistake, they may want to pause at some point before the midterms. Speculative on my part, but it's all part of this big equity equation that we're dealing with right now. Beautiful. Thank you. And kind of on that note, Darius, I'm curious to your thoughts as well. How do you feel about Sven's response? Do you agree? Anything you conflict with there? No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, I don't think this Fed is able to pause just politically for a variety of reasons, um, not the least of which is sort of consumer sentiment surrounding inflation and also just sort of the frameworks that they've outlined with respect to um, the labor market. I mean, if you look at our analysis on the labor market, which is you know, not particularly rocket science, it's just the labor market is grown, growing at a very aggressive rate. Um, and so the kind of, if you think about the Fed, think of this through the lens of the Fed's mandate, not through the lens of an investor, which is what we're all spending time doing up into it. You know, the Fed has three mandates. You know, it's the labor market stability, it's price stability, and it's financial market stability. And two of those things are telling them that they should absolutely be hiking very aggressively. Now, the sort of, you know, 100 millionaire that is Jerome Powell, who spent his life in the buy side, understands that, you know, markets are forward looking. But I still think there's a job to do in terms of managing expectations and not letting the inflation genie out of the bottle um, with respect to term premia, structural inflation expectations, et cetera. So would you say then from your perspective that there should be a more aggressive hike or do you do you think 75 is enough for the time being? Uh, if I was running the Fed right now, I'd. I punt the economy into you know something that looks like a deep recession now, so that I can pivot sooner and reflate later. You know, reflate like take this opportunity. The, the smartest thing the Fed can do, from my perspective, is take today's opportunity to completely you know whack inflation expectations. Like just come you know just have a shitty summer, uh, asset prices selling off, et cetera, et cetera, and then get to September twenty first and you can land the plane. Problem with sort of try, trying to land the plane now is that. You know, we've seen the backup in energy prices off the lows. We've seen, you know, uh, uh, ag prices stabilize. We've seen inflation expectations stop going down. And so the problem with, you know, where the dollar is and where all these sort of price levels are is that if they pivot too soon, you're going to be adding fuel to the fire. Maybe that's a political objective. It's just not one that has been stated prior to today. So we may have to learn more. Beautiful. Thank you. And I kind of want to like pivot here to Alpha and Mr. Blonde, just since it's a perfect segue from Darius there. Numerous people 
uh, traders specifically are asking the Fed to stop or pause rate hikes. They say the pain has, you know, already decimated the economy and poses a greater risk long term and that we are already in a recession. Before we get, you know, to the point of recession itself, let's let's talk a little bit about what happens if the Fed pauses rates too early or should they be stopping at all? Al, what are your thoughts? I'm going to hand the floor to Mr. Blom Macro, from whom I can only learn. So, Mr. Blom, you first. <laughs> yeah. That was beautiful. Thank well, you. What a, uh, well, what a setup. Hey, so listen, I, I mean, look, I think the Fed should, I mean, I think the Fed should continue on the course until it's clear that inflation uh, is on the right trajectory. I mean, we've talked about this before. This, you know, a lot of what what's happening today that might seem like a mistake, you know, in my opinion, is a function of a mistake that was already made, which is they had a, the opportunity to kind of start the process of unwinding accommodation at a uh, an early and slow pace, uh, and they didn't, and so now they have to go late and fast, and that creates more uh, more economic volatility. It obviously, you know, comes at a cost. Uh, and the cost is a uh, is a is a sharper, you know, uh, more dramatic slowdown than than maybe any of us would would like. Uh, but at the same time, I think if you're hiking at 75 basis point clips, you need a Fed that has a steady hand. So that means you know, kind of staying committed to the path uh, until the job is done, which I think is you know something that Powell alluded to before. Um, if you know, if getting the job done results in a pretty meaningful slowdown. Uh, and or you know some form of recession, uh, that's an unfortunate you know uh, cost associated with the benefit of getting inflation down uh, and back into a zone where it becomes more controllable. So I think they should hike. Um, I think they will hike seventy at least seventy five today, and probably I think the tone and the suggestion from the Fed will be that they're going to continue to hike uh, until inflation is where um, they need it to be, which is probably somewhere south of. Uh, you know, I'll take a guess and say, you know, south of 5% or south of 4%, but in a clear downward trajectory uh, and one in which momentum is is down for, for prices. Uh, and I, I don't I just don't think that the economic growth um, and activity is the priority for them at this stage. This is going to be so easy for me in this podcast. I just say the same of what Darius, Mr. Blonde, Joe and all the others say, and I'm going to be safe. If I want to add something smart, I try at least, is that uh, more than what we wish or we think the Fed should do by managing money, I learned we should try and understand what the Fed will do, because that is by far more important for asset classes and risk than what we think they should do. And I'm looking at the Federal Reserve that since the beginning of 2022 has moved from a bank with two mandates to a bank with one and one only mandate, which is to bring inflation down with a hammer if necessary. So that hasn't changed. Um, and they're looking at both the momentum of inflation and the composition of inflationary pressures being developing the wrong way. So we have a broadening in inflationary pressures and we have the momentum of inflation accelerating. That's the setup they're entering today. And even if inflation is one of the most lagging indicators, so in macro you have forward-looking indicators, coincident indicators and lagging indicators, they're basically looking in the rearview mirror by targeting inflation but they have no alternative given their Monday and the political pressures underlying. So I have to think that today it's probably already set in stone to be a 75 basis point hike. But what matters the most will be what Powell will tell us about the future. 
and especially as markets are pricing a wildly different path for Fed funds future ahead, at some point, if not today, over the next few meetings, he'll have to tell us whether he even considers slowing down the pace of hikes or is going to keep looking at the only thing he seems to be focused on, which is inflation. And at that point, you it's going to be very hard for him to justify any pause or any cuts because as Mr. Blonder, Darius have highlighted before, the composition of pace of inflation is, is very high and it's going to take inevitably a little bit of time before it comes back to levels that are more consistent with the Fed mandate. Perfect. Thank you for your viewpoint there. And this this kind of spins me in another direction. Joseph, in your in your recent blog post, The Money Still Flows, you kind of argued that traders were underestimating the Fed. What are your thoughts here on what the panel said so far? Is Powell's only focus inflation and not worrying about other mandates at the moment? Absolutely. I think Powell has been very clear, as Elf suggested, that for now, they're going to be a one-mandate bank. He said it a couple of ways. Um, he, one of the ways he's, he's said it is that, to, so usually the Fed is a full employment and price stability bank. Now, he has said that full employment is contingent on price stability. So you got to get price stability down first. He's also said that his commitment to price stability is unconditional. Now, unconditional in central bank speak is super, super powerful. It means no matter what happens, recession or not, we're going to get uh, inflation under control. And if you listen to some recent Fed governors speak, they're actually pretty unequivocal. Governor Waller uh, recently in his speech addressed one of the common, I think, counterpoints to this inflation in that it's supply driven. Governor Waller says our mandate is price stability, not price stability conditional on whether or not it's a supply shock. So it's it's actually from the Fed's perspective, what I see, it's actually super clear what they will do. Um, they said they're going to hike rates and they're not going to stop until they see clear and compelling evidence that the CPI is coming down over a period of months. And we, we just don't have a lot of time to see that. And it even we, it's not even clear that CBI has peaked yet. We have tailwinds in owner equivalent rent that's that'll be uh, pushing inflation higher in the next few months. So for the Fed, um, they're very concerned about us moving into what they think of as a high inflation regime, where once you enter it, it's really hard to get out. This is not just what the Fed is saying. This is what uh, the community of central bankers have been saying very loudly. And the market seems to think that this is the same playbook that we've had in the post-GFC world, where we were suffering. We were in a low-demand world, and inflation was very low. And whenever something happened, the Fed would cut rates uh, by the dip, cut rates by the dip. But I think things are fundamentally changed. Um, inflation is high. Fed's reaction function has changed. And the market doesn't seem to have, in my view, has grasped that yet. So I, I suspect that we will have some repricing uh, of that forward curve today. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to spin this over to you now, Christian. In your perspective, is the Fed too aggressive given what everyone else has said so far? Or do you think that, you know, from a trader's perspective, equities need a break from quantitative tightening and hikes? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think they've got a tough, tough job and, you know, they're kind of backed themselves into this corner. But, you know, I, I think that they're going to be, you know, they're going to, continue to do what they're doing until we see some results from inflation and 
Um, you know, I like what was just said. Um, you know, we got the, the CPI report that came out a couple of weeks ago was, you know, was a very high report and, you know, came in uh, higher than expected. So, um, you know, they're going to be, I think they're going to continue to, you know, do what they say that they're going to do what they need to do with an eye on employment. Um, but don't forget, on Friday, we get another gauge of inflation. And, you know, they've said before that they do look very closely at this um, PCE deflator, uh, which comes out on Friday. So, you know, not to, you know, not to say that we're going to get a complete like turnaround, but, you know, I think that they're going to kind of he's my guess is that he's going to leave the door open in terms of, you know, just feeling out the data and saying, you know, hey, we can kind of begin to, um, you know, go the other way in terms of less tightening if the data warrants it. So we'll get that data point on Friday. Um, but I don't think he's going to really change his tune from from what we heard because we just haven't seen it in the data yet. And the employment data, you know, while we're hearing a lot from different companies that are reporting earnings or making announcements about job freezes and so forth, you know, that, that hasn't really showed up in the data too much. So I, I think they're just going to, you know, continue to, to, to um, you know, talk about what they need to do in terms of inflation. But they're, they're going to try to walk the line and communicate that they're going to be watching employment data to see if anything really changes with uh, the economy in, in terms of the data that comes out. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to I'm going to spin this to you now, Brad. Same question, but kind of in regards to growth. How do you feel about what they said so far? Yeah, it's hard to hard to disagree with anything that, that's been said. So I'll, I'll really just just add and, and try to try to um, create some, or make some different points so that we're not all just agreeing with each other for a few hours. Uh, but so so two mandates, it's been it's been talked about a lot. And, and when you look at the labor force um, and, and in a three point six percent unemployment rate, it, it's got to seem like the Federal Reserve is willing to concede a four percent, a four and a half percent unemployment rate. If we, even if we peak at an eight plus percent CPI, and and it was just um, very rightfully stated that um, things like rent inflation and wage inflation, which are very sticky parts of the CPI, are, are not going to go away as quickly as commodity inflation. Um, but, but but I mean, when 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 we're dealing with one, okay, so when we're dealing with with these two two mandates of of, of employment and and inflation, and when we have two people or two two job openings for every one job seeker and when we have this very sticky part of the cpi uh, which is which is wage inflation the federal reserve has to lean in and, and they have to tame inflation and and yes we can peak at at nine percent and a nine percent cpi or, or hopefully we do um because we're seeing things like wholesale gas prices and commodities fall but if we stubbornly stay at that five or six percent rate even if we stay at four percent i mean we're not going to be able we're not going to be able to just kind of pivot and pause and 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 cut rates and, and get back to what was just stated in, in that that really buy the dip buy the dip mentality and, and I mean we we we've we've changed a lot and and I'm I'm a I'm a long duration growth asset investor and I'm keeping a very large cash position right now fully in anticipation of the fact that inflation is the only thing that matters right now which has been rightfully stated because although we're getting layoff news from TikTok and and from Coinbase and all these companies we still have an extremely tight labor market. And that is still contributing to an extremely sticky piece of the CPI, which is wage inflation, which is running way above sustainable levels, which which I, I, I'm sounding a little insensitive right now because I'm saying, OK, let, let's hike into inflation. Let, let's get rid of wage inflation and, and make people earn less. Um, and 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 it's just a really unfortunate um, it's a really unfortunate reality of economic and macro cycles where we, we do. I mean, in a soft landing, yes, I, I suppose it's always possible. 
Um, every single Fed chief will, will try to convince us that it's possible, but it's extremely hard to do if, if you want to look look at look, look at history books and in our most recent um, most recent hiking cycles, which is where I have to learn because I'm 25 and haven't lived through this yet. Um, but but I mean they 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 really they they can't they can't pause they can't slow down until in my opinion we, we have we, we have a very meaningfully um, falling and, and precipitously and consistently falling CPI and and Darius it's great to meet you what you said about kind of front loading rate hikes I, I wholeheartedly agree with just just getting to that point where just accepting the fact that we're, we're soft landing soft landing is like a unicorn and and if we if we want to if we want to get to that point where we can we can pivot and hike a little bit less aggressively and get to that point where long duration cash flows are being discounted at a less aggressive rate, we probably do have to get to a point of pain and a point of recession. Just looking at at all of the all of the last hiking cycles and, and where that really ended up. And and really, I, I think we're sort of kind of trying starting to get there. And, and I hope we're trying to get there because, I mean, if you look at asset markets, we've given back a lot. But I, I don't love the 10 year, two year uh, yield curve. I think that's kind of noisy. But if you look at the 10 year three-month yield curve, that's been racing towards inversion. And looking at 2018, looking at the great financial crisis, the dot-com bubble, Black Monday in 1987, um, those, are the, those are the last inversions we've had there. So um, to me, that, that's the sign that I'm looking at in terms of yield curves and, and, and what to watch for in terms of when we do get to that recession, when we do go too far, and when we can kind of pivot and turn around, and when I can selfishly lean in and, and in, invest a lot of this cash position I have sitting on the sidelines, in these wonderful companies like Trade Desk and CrowdStrike, which are are killing it, but no one really cares right now, and rightfully so, because we're in this very aggressive hawkish cycle, and because these are long duration assets, and because they're being discounted far more heavily. So um, I, I don't know if, if that was a little bit of a of, of, uh, of a tangent. It probably was because I, I have a hard time keeping my my thoughts quick and brief. Uh, but I'll pass it back to you for now. No, actually, you gave me a perfect segue. I was just going to thank you for that. But before I segue, everybody listening right now, we've got quite a people, quite a people, quite a few people in here now. If you're not following the folks up here on this panel, please do so now. By not doing so, you're missing out on a lot of free information these folks are dishing out. Really brilliant people. And again, ridiculously grateful that they're all here to, to speak for you guys. But kind of back to that segue, you had kind of a comment in there about layoffs. Darius and Mr. Blonde have both spoken at length with regards to recessions. And Darius, since you recently said the following, I'll probably pitch this to you first. Uh, you recently said lots of weakness was priced in at the lows, but your research is definitive in suggesting that an actual recession has not been priced in. Can you kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah, happy to. Um, so there's five uh, sets of market, six sets of market indicators that we look at. Uh, to confirm whether or not a recession has been priced in. We look at everything, obviously, but just, to, just to, as, as it relates to recession, um, you know, the financial conditions index, the uh, S&P 500's next 12 months earnings yield, uh, IG credit spreads, the ratio between defensive stocks and cyclical stocks, the ratio between high beta stocks and low beta stocks, and then finally, uh, VIX curve, um, the slope of the VIX curve, or whether or not it's in backwardation. And you know, with the recent lows uh, in the market last month, you know, we were very shy. You know, particularly for the um, for the indicators that are spread based, very shy of levels we uh, reached. And you know, kind of even in the mildest recession in U.S. history, which would have been two thousand one, uh, well shy of what we saw in 1990, 1991, and obviously well shy of what we saw in two thousand eight. Um, that same goes with the high beta low beta ratio ratio between cyclicals and defensives. And then even if you had the um, VIX curve backwardation, you know, we didn't see the kind of capitulation you typically see at the bottom of a bear market. 
um, you know, not even a bear market, but just even like a significant correction of mag- of substance, you know, going back the last kind of 15, 20 years. So, um, you know, when you look at it through those lens, you know, I know the market was down 24% on its lows, but, you know, just from an internals perspective, from a cross asset perspective, and ultimately from a liquidity cycle perspective, it's very unlikely that the market has actually gotten to, 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 to come to come to grips with a real recession with a hashtag actual recession. No, it's not two quarters anymore. <laughs> I made that distinction as well. Just really quick thing on that. So uh, I'm sure there's some folks on the call or on the, on the spaces that are sort of um, a little bit confused what I mean by that. Uh, so there's a technical recession, which means the GDP uh, is contracting on, a, on an annualized basis two quarters in a row. Um, there's a lot of reasons why GDP could contract, including you know big swings in inventories, big swings in the trade balance, which generally don't tell you much about kind of the underlying health of the economy. And then there's the hashtag actual recession, which the NBR defines as a kind of multi-month period of a you know significant decline in output and income uh, that's you know kind of um, you know spanning across all sectors of the economy. And we very much are not we have not seen anything that looks like that. We're starting to see some leading survey data. You look at the PMIs, the consumer confidence measures, some of these uh, regional Fed measures that kind of starting to look like that. But generally speaking, we have not um, not even uh, come close to to, to realizing that. Mr. Blonde, do you have anything to add to that? I'm really curious about your your thoughts uh, in regards to technical and actual recession. Yeah, I I don't have a lot to add. I mean, but I I would echo a lot of what Darius said. I mean, I I guess I take I take it from a slightly different angle. I mean, if S and P was down 25 percent peak to trough uh, into um, mid June, if you look at other uh, historical historical recessions or drawdowns that occurred around recessions, particularly if I look at um, periods that had an inflation-like component to their, uh, you know, to the to the you know in the backdrop, 87, 74, 2008, um, and you know, and we maybe even want to include 2001 style, you know, recession given the valuation starting point. But all those periods pretty consistently had a drawdown that was more like 35 to 40 percent in markets, uh, and so. You know, that rule of thumb would tell you we certainly have considered uh, the recession outcome, but haven't fully priced it in, as Darius said. The other factor I would I would point to is that, um, you know, you can have you can have an earnings recession and not have an economic recession, but you can definitely not have an economic recession and not have an earnings recession Uh, and an earnings recession. You're going to see, you know, EPS um, drawdown, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 percent. Um, and it, you know, you, you, even if you put a higher multiple on that, um, I don't think that we're we're yet, you know, priced for an earnings environment that has, you know, kind of sub two hundred dollars uh, on S and P five hundred. You know, the current, you know, forecast for for twenty twenty three is, I think, uh, two thirty eight and falling. Uh, so those two those two things, you know, kind of you don't make me think that we've had a recession. But look, look, I mean, markets, um, you know, don't move in a straight line. And, you know, I think at this at this point in the cycle, you know, the the, the fundamental aspect of, of weakness is, is the part that sort of tends to move a little bit more slowly uh, in that liquidity corrections, valuation corrections happen quickly. Uh, and in my judgment, that was pretty much the January through uh, April, you know, January through May period. Uh, and now we're sort of dealing with something that's you know, likely to be a, a little bit more slow moving and that the fundamental weakness or the sort of the probability or the risk of, of recession and probability happens over the course of of a couple quarters. Um, the the earnings 
uh, downgrade cycle is something that happens over a couple quarters. Markets can certainly move faster, but the realization of that is something that moves with you know at a different speed limit uh, than Fed hikes, removal of liquidity, and and, and valuation corrections. Beautiful, thank you. And and now kind of same question to the whole panel, honestly, and answer. Uh, pitch it to Sven. Are we in a recession now? Currently, not until midterms are over. <laughs> no, Sven, I'm, I'm kidding. And 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 I'm and I'm going to try not to just agree with everything that's being said by the panel. But but what Darius had to say about technical recession in terms of uh, earnings growth and an economic recession, I think is spot on and and doesn't need much more context from me. Unlike Mr. Bullard, I do believe the yield curve is signaling a recession coming, especially if they keep hiking aggressively. Uh, look, here's a couple of things maybe I disagree with with what was said earlier, uh, at least on, on on the maybe belief in terms of how much credit to give the Fed what they actually say. Their job is jaw boning, and frankly. I think the mission from the beginning of the year for them has been to let the market do most of the tightening in the hope that the reversal in asset prices will bring about a slowing in growth check. It has, and that will ultimately bring down inflation. They don't want an event. Uh, they don't want. They don't want something to happen from a systemic perspective, and that's why I bring back the extreme high debt levels that we have now. A note that the decline, as vicious as it may have been, or as deep as it may have been so far this year, has been extremely orderly. And, and from a technical perspective, even, I would argue, predictable. And and so keep in mind history here, and that's really important as well. The Fed tends to hike rates until something breaks, right? That's why we tend to enter recessions on rate hike cycles. The only exception really was 2018 when they pivoted before uh, and so the unknown for us here in in terms of this setup here is obviously this massive inflation that we have some of it is completely out of the fed's control and the examples that we have in terms of high inflation was 1974 1980 1982 then too they ended up cutting rates not because inflation was solved no it's because recessions occurred as a result of the rate hikes and inflation was then starting to roll over inside of the recession so you'd be surprised maybe to hear that they cut through rates in each of those events with cpi still above 10 percent so i would argue they knew from the very beginning of the year that they that they had to bring about a recession to get inflation uh, under control not not rate hikes. It's about getting a recession to slow things down to that point. Politically, they can't say that. And that's why they will avoid recession talk and definition moving whatever to the very last moment when they when they have to admit that. Because if they were to admit that we're in the recession or that we're heading into recession, it's going to be really difficult for them to justify further rate hikes. And of course, the labor market is right now maybe the lagging indicator here in the sense that it gives them an excuse to continue on the rate hike path. But make no mistake, an organization that spent 15 years of managing the economy via asset price direction and spent a fortune on it, right, in piece of QE and zero rates, and even last year 
we're keen to really be slow on any tapering talk for fear of creating another taper tantrum. They're not going to suddenly completely ignore the asset price equation uh, issue. So they, they will literally find any excuse in my mind that if there is a reason for a pause, they will they will find it. it. It does not appear in their official language at all. But we've seen this time and time again. Their official language at the end of the day is not predictive of what they're actually going to do. And I think this is a comment I support what Alf said earlier. But we, we, we shouldn't focus on what they should do, but rather what they will do. So this DNA of the Fed that we've seen time and time again they cannot be blind to the risks they're facing with aggressive rate hikes into this hyper-valued market from last year that is still historically very highly valued. So they are, I think, from my perspective, watching this all very carefully, and they don't want to see a systemic event. And that's so far we haven't. That's the good news, but. Yeah, we 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 again. I come back. What the bond market is signaling, and as I said earlier on Twitter, when in doubt, believe the bond market. And the bond market obviously has set a fairly significant signal in the last month. I'll leave it at that. Beautiful. I love to see some differing viewpoints. They make it really easy to get some good back and forth commentary. So I'm going to pitch this to Alf. After what Sven said, is there anything that you would change about what's been discussed so far? Do you agree with everything Sven said? I would just point out to a piece of analysis I've carried on over the last week or so. Uh, There's nothing to be happy about the recession, but at least it seems to be one of the most convincing ways to slow inflation down. And obviously, if you are the Federal Reserve or a policymaker in the U.S., you don't want to engineer a recession. You do a soft landing. But history says that over the last 100 years in the U.S., every time you enter the recession and inflation was above 3%, basically as today, every single recession, 11 out of 11, um, they've been able to slow significantly inflation down to the tune of 7 percentage points from peak to trough on average. And it took on average months to slow inflation down from the peak percent, which is the Fed target. So as you enter, assuming you enter some sort of a recession, not only the technical one, but also the one, the consistent one backed up by labor market weakness, and assume you enter that round about now, history would tell you that in 16 months from now, on average, you would see inflation back from 9% all the way to 2%. So recession might not be what policymakers are looking for, but it might be one of the few convincing things from a historical perspective that is able to slow down um, inflation pretty consistently. Just wanted to add this piece of, um, of research I've carried on over, over the last week or so. So I'm going to open this to the panel once again on the idea of recession and hikes. And if anyone wants to comment on what's been said so far, uh, that's fine. I just want to open this up to the panel. So anybody else have any comments on that? I'll, I'll make a note. Yeah, I'll just make a quick note about the level of debt constraining how how much the Fed can hike. Well, first of all, I'm actually surprised that we got this far into a hiking cycle without really there being any any accidents. To recall back in 2018, we, we were a little bit below this level, and it seemed like the equity market just imploded. So, 
I think we should not just look at the level of debt in the system, though, because debt is just one side of the equation. Assets are the other side. And household net worth is at all-time highs. It's exploded higher. If you think about what everyone owns, uh, 60% of Americans own a home. Well, that's up 30%. S&P 500, still 20 30% above uh, pre-COVID levels. So even though that level of debt in the system is higher, the level of assets is also much higher as well. Now, Powell obviously has a reputation of being very scared of the market and being careful of not to prick the, prick the bubble, so to speak. And I actually think that history is part of the reason why he would try to be more aggressive this time, because I think he realizes that he kept policy too easy during the COVID times. He should not have kept buying mortgage-backed securities, for example, when the house prices were already up 20% year over year. And that's going to force him to overcompensate a bit uh, to show that he's just not a pushover. And, you know, he's also been very wrong about transitory inflation. So he's going to have to, at least politically, try to compensate for that. I, I would not disagree with that. I would just say, you know, there is there's a concern that the Fed is making policy based on what they think their credibility is or not to lose or save face basically vis-a-vis previous mistakes and 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 there you get into a very dangerous territory because and that's that's the risk of the big policy mistake here right uh, Mohammed Elian won about this last year about them being too loose too long and then forced to slam the foot on the brake. And then something does break. None of us can predict what might break. And, and so far, we are fortunate that nothing has broken. But uh, in, in general, Fed psychology here is, is, is a concern. And it's a concern that they're, again, maybe then too slow to react to what the market is already signaling to them. And they, they were terribly terrible on this last year. They were too slow this year, and and obviously now uh, we're getting to a point where they are locking themselves again into a narrative uh, from which, you know, the narrative right now, there's no recession, it's not their base case, blah, 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 and we have positive GDP growth forecast into next year and and beyond without any recession. And so the, the narrative is the danger in the sense that the Fed itself, again, is more concerned about their image as opposed to what the right policy is or the danger of whatever policy is that they're currently locking themselves into it. So I just throw that out there. I, I, I have a quick question. This is for Joseph. I mean, based on, on, on what you just said, I mean, you, you suggested that you're surprised that we haven't seen anything break yet uh, in the context of this tightening cycle. I guess I, I guess I have a different perspective. I mean, I think that, I mean, this tightening cycle, sort of at least on the part of the Fed, only really started in March, uh, and it's been a very um, sharp, fast cycle. So in terms of time, I'm not sure that we've had enough time for that, you know, um, the tightening cycle to to manifest and show up somewhere, like, or whatever is going to break to sort of show up in a tangible way. So that's that's one thing. I mean, I think the other thing is on, on, um, on household net worth. I mean, I'd be careful about those, you know, the stats that we that are old, right? I mean, so since then, I mean, equity markets are down 30, you know, percent on an all cap basis. Uh, I mean, I think there's pretty clear signs of 
of activity slowing in the housing market, and usually that precedes, uh, you know, a, a price slowdown. And maybe that price slowdown is is not as dramatic at the national level as it is in some pockets. Uh, but then there's another big part of of household uh, wealth, which is you know fixed income, whether it be muni bonds or otherwise, uh, that's down in price. Uh, so I, I, I'm not so sure that um, you know this. I guess this kind of falls under the category of you know policy tightening works with long and variable. Um, you know, long and variable lags. And, and maybe, you know, just because we haven't seen anything yet, doesn't necessarily preclude us from seeing it, um, you know, in the near future. I, I, I think of the tightening cycle being short and aggressive as more likely to break something. And that, in my view, is more stressful because the market has less time to react. So I am surprised because the last time, I mean, we saw the equity market tank in quarter four of 2018, but it, it seems to be much more orderly now. And of course, the market learns, so probably should not expect it to react the same way. Now, I, I agree with you completely that net worth has come down um, a bit since the beginning of the year. But if you just look at the pre-COVID levels as a benchmark, it's still up a lot. And as the market seems to think that the Fed is um, going to cut rates Next year, it, it seems like it's rekindling some risk sentiment. So, um, you know, bonds are, bond prices are going higher again. We're getting a bit in major equity indices. Um, even if you look at crypto, I mean, we've come down, Bitcoin has come down a lot from 60,000 to, let's say, 25,000. But if you think where it was pre-COVID, it's more than twice as high as it is pre-COVID. So just over a couple of years, people do have a lot more wealth. Not as much as they did earlier in the year, but... I think sizably more than they did pre-COVID. Well, they also have less real wealth, though. Agree or disagree? What's real wealth? Well, like inflation adjusted. So we talk about these numbers of wealth in nominal terms, or spending in nominal terms, um, or you know, uh -huh. excess, you know, household excess savings in nominal terms. But a lot of that is naturally eaten up by the cost of uh, essentials. Yeah, Mr. Bond, to your point, savings levels I think are, are setting like decade levels or, or maybe more. So we got that massive spike from stimulus and then it is completely normalized and then some. Yeah, savings, that's a flow variable. The stock is actually much higher than it is before. No, I agree with you though, Mr. Blonde, that, that inflation, that, that does erode a lot of the gleans. Um, I haven't done the math to see how much real wealth we have. I would be surprised if it's less than pre-COVID though. I have to chime in really quickly and say this is a wonderful com conversation and, and just having a lot of fun. Um, and, and then uh, one more thing I wanted to add. So we, this point of not breaking anything, um, there are probably a lot of equity investors uh, like me listening to that and saying, well, didn't equity markets break? And I think in the context of the Federal Reserve, it's really important to consider that they don't really care about equity markets. And again, I'm, I'm a long-term investor and, and, and I'm saying that they do not care about my stocks. They really care about credit markets and, 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 and the, the massive relative impact that has versus equity markets. And when you're looking at things like ICE Bank of America, U.S. high yield uh, index option adjusted spreads, they have spiked out a lot, which getting towards breaking, but they're still way below where we've been in, in terms of taper tantrum, in terms of all, all of these other um, exogenous macro events that we've had that have really put stress on the system. So um, just wanted to, to say, agree that nothing is broken. And, and I am a little bit somewhat surprised that these spreads aren't higher. And then also just want to give the point that I do think there's an artificial cap just going off of Joseph, what you said about 
uh, debt to GDP ratio being way higher than it was when, when someone like Volcker was hiking rates as, as aggressively as he was. We, we don't have the room to do that. We can't afford the interest payments. And I think that puts kind of an unfortunate uh, for some people, but fortunate for me, uh, artificial cap on, on where the Fed funds rate can go. Um, now, where that is, uh, I think other speakers on here have a better idea of that than I do, but just wanted to give those two points. And then also just mention that this conversation has been awesome and really happy to be part of it. Yeah, I just uh, I'm, I'm on my Bloomberg now. So I just did the math on the uh, net worth thing, um, Joseph and, uh, and Mr. Baum were discussing. Um, so uh, net worth since the end of 2019 is up 28%. Um, if you inflation adjust that, it's up 14%. So it's a pretty significant rise uh, regardless, but obviously inflation has eroded a lot of that. Yeah, and, and how, what number would that be if you actually use the real inflation number and not the fake ones that the government puts out? <laughs> are you are you trusting the net worth statistics as well? They're all government statistics. Who cares? <laughs> it's apples to apples. <laughs> so since that gave me a new segue, I'm just going to pivot to Joseph. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know. That thanks. Thanks for doing the math. That was that really helpful. So I guess net worth adjusting by government numbers is is sizable, but not as high as normal. I, well, I'll actually make a point about um, not being able to hide funds because we have a lot of debt. I hear that a lot, but it doesn't really make sense to me because if you're on a fiat system, you know you can always afford your interest rate payments. There's really no limit to that. Uh, at the end of the day, you could always have the Fed buy it, which is what the Fed has been doing uh, you know, for, for the past 10 years. So um, that's that the debt, sovereign debt levels are not a constraint to any fiat system at all. Joseph, this is a very smart remark. I'd like to back it up by <clears throat> saying that the 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 higher likelihood of having a financial crisis of any sorts in a fully elastic fiat system stems from very high level of private indebtedness. Households and corporates cannot print money to repay their liabilities or service their debt. They need earnings and cash flows. And if the structural drivers of economic growth in the private sectors are weakening, uh, I mean labor force growth, productivity of capital and labor, aren't strong enough and levels of private debt are increasing, that often becomes uh, the real underlying problem, much more than government debt, which is covered uh, disproportionately more in uh, mainstream media, I think. And I think, Elf, you've done some really good work on showing some zombie companies too that might have trouble refinancing some of their debt if rates go higher. So that's definitely something to, to, to think about. So since we're talking about blowups, uh, I'm going to open this to the entire panel. So anybody feel free to chime in. Feel free to yell at each other if you disagree. Let's get some violence and energy in here, guys. So open to the panel. Since we're talking about blowups, is a Federal Reserve blowup coming given macro environments? I think I think we're more, much more likely to see a European Central Bank blow up, up before a Federal I mean, you see what's going on with their crazy situation where at the same time they're trying to raise rates uh but at the same time they're stuck with trying to support the peripheral you know the basket case countries like greece spain portugal and italy that are just not even remotely competitive when being in the same currency with you know germany uh, the european central bank is in way more trouble than the federal reserve and, and i just my opinion yeah, good point from uh, Wall Street Silver. Uh, and, you know, 
you look at the Bank of Japan and they're the biggest basket case of them all. They're starting to lose control of their currency. They're starting to lose control of their bond market. They're a big owner of their stock market. Decades and decades of this sort of monetary policy has delivered no relief from the uh, real estate crisis and the sort of economic slack it left in its wake. And there's also demographic issues that are compounding it. In some ways, we can look at Japan as a bit of a preview, even though there's, there's a lot of differences. We can at least say that, you know, the law of diminishing returns are in full effect. And there's a certain point where monetary policy and fiscal policy just don't really do much more than push on a string. Central banks can't blow up. They print money. Yeah, I, th I think, did, did, what, yeah, what didn't, didn't uh, Greenspan have the comment that we can guarantee all of our payments, we just can't guarantee the buying power of those payments. I mean, they'll, they'll print whatever the heck they have to. They're never going to default. It's just you, you can't guarantee the purchasing power of what they're actually throwing out there in the system. Fair to say, though, that when you enjoy the world's reserve currency, you have exorbitant privilege. I don't know that we can say that about every central bank. Um, you can probably say that the big ones. I mean, I mean it, that's more of a developed economy central bank um, situation as opposed to just the world reserve currency um all the developed economy central banks you know can issue uh debt in their own currencies it's the develop it's the developing world that doesn't really have the privilege of issuing debt being able to raise capital within their own currencies i mean they can't actually i mean technically they're not like the fed they can't just force these fee to buy their debt. So it is possible for big European peripheral countries to have debt problems, um, but that would be more of a political self-imposed problem that they have. Well, I mean, it ha that hasn't really been a problem so far because the European Central Bank isn't willing to let any of the European countries fail. And that's whether that's a smart economic decision or not, that's another discussion. It's more of a political thing in that the powers that be in Europe are not willing to let Greece or Spain, or Portugal, or Italy, or Ireland, or any of those countries that really have had, you know, are on the verge of, you know, Ireland, less, I mean, some of them have grown out of those problems, but the European Central Bank's not going to let any of them fail, and that's more of a political decision than an economic one. I think Alf would probably agree with that. I know he's, he, that, that, that's one of his opinions. And that's the segue I was looking for, baby, since we're talking about the ECB, given their, I believe, their first ever 50 BPS rate hike and their anti-fragmentation policies. Is the ECB doomed, Alf? I think uh, both the comments from Wall Street Silver and Joseph are very valid here. Um, you can see that in some price action already. Uh, while the ECBs will be doing their best to try and backstop sovereign countries because that is uh, the first point where the weakness actually arises, right? This is the most liquid market, like, for example, Italian government bond market. You can short them very, very easily via futures. They are subject to, you know, very, very quick and fast drawdowns from uh, speculative investors. And they're always are, are very important for the transmission mechanism of the central bank. So they'll try to make sure that those don't blow up. And you can see that the instruments they're designing are, well, somehow achieving a mediocre result so far, but a very good one if you compare those credit spreads against corners of the European market where they cannot directly intervene. If you look at the CDS on uh, high yield European debt, for example, it's blowing through the roof. And why? Because the ECB does not have a direct mandate to actually backstop some high-yield junk corporate issuing debt in Europe. 
while they have an inherent mandate, you can assume, which is what Wall Street is trying to point out, and I agree with him, to effectively backstop the, the, the very existence of the overall project. And ultimately, it can take a little bit longer, especially because of the fragmentation that Joseph was discussing before. Um, if you remember, the German Constitutional Court has approved quantitative easing programs to be legal under the German Constitution only because they were designed to have a certain defined size and a certain defined timeline. So let's say yield curve control or perennial QE sort of programs are deemed not to be necessarily legal under German constitutional law. And obviously all these, you know, uh, bureaucratic aspects, all these fragmentations, all this weird architecture Europe has puts them in a quite awkward situation compared to the US or even to Japan, where there is one fiscal policy, one monetary policy, and it's much easier to harmonize them together. In Europe, that is really not the case. And, and I don't even know if the German courts have yet, I mean, the, the, this whole new anti-fragmentation tool that the European Central Bank has come up with, it might not even survive the court system, because I don't know if if that's going to be allowed where the European Central Bank is able to favor specific countries and just arbitrarily put Germany and the Netherlands on the hook to pay for it all. Um, I don't know if that's been decided yet. or it, I know it hasn't been decided yet, and I don't know if anyone's going to have the courage to actually challenge it, but I know the German court system has had problems with that type of favoritism in the past. Christian, I'm wondering if you had any comments on Europe's perspective thus far in contrast to American markets. Oh, geez, that's a great question. I view I view Europe as kind of the um, and I hate and I and I'm not trying to offend anyone, but just a little bit of a canary in the coal mine. Um, they seem to be more sensitive to you know they to moves. You know they they really haven't had any any um, you know major rate hikes. You know uh, you know until just recently where Lagarde um, you know made the announcement. But I think that Europe could blink first or could pivot first. Um, that's my take. Um, you know, we've certainly seen over the years, um, certain things, you know, we've heard about Brexit and Brexit and, and whether or not these things were really going to affect the market and they end up, they ended up not so much, but, um, you know, my job is not really to kind of predict if there's going to be any, you know, major, um, you know, danger there, but just to basically watch, you know, watch for things and watch for things unfold and whether or not these things are going to be more talk of, you know, major issues or if they're actually going to be real issues. So I, I think they will be important to watch because um, it seems like they've got, believe it or not, <laughs> more issues than in the U.S. And, and they, they could be that canary in the coal mine to say, wow, you know, something's really not working there and, and something's backfiring there and they're going to really have to kind of move away from that um, hawkish tone and um, and address some of their issues. Well, the, the key is going to be the Italian election that's coming up. You know, Mario Draghi's on his way out and the next government, um, is it going to be a spending government that just totally ignores European rules and is, you know, the historically Europe just has a, passion for kicking can down the road and not really reforming and fixing problems in their banking system and look at italy's like 25 percent of sovereign debt in the entire eurozone isn't it something like that it's that has a real put i mean you thought the greek debt problem was big that was tiny compared to what's going on with italy 
I mean, if Italy really, the spreads between Italian debt and German debt, if they get huge again, uh, that's it. That that just could just spiral out of control so badly if the European Central Bank's not able to make this anti-fragmentation rule work. And if you look at the actual rules for the anti-fragmentation tool, I forget the acronym. What is it? Some I forget even forget it. But they're 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 they want to raise rates but keep buying Italian debt basically. Um, and if you look at the rules they issued. Italy doesn't even qualify for them to be able to buy the debt for the for the central bank to buy the debt. So I don't know what this new government we won't know about this new government. It's going to be up in the air for months still to find out who the new government is and whether they're going to play ball and and follow the financial rules. And historically, they haven't followed the rules. And historically, the European Central Bank doesn't enforce the rules. They just sort of and we're not going to let them fail. We'll just ignore the rules and buy the debt anyways, right? Tracy, are you here? I'm yes. Not in... There we go. Perfect. Perfect. I'm going to pitch to you here since we're kind of talking about this, this global macro view on things. Uh, speaking on that macro environment, could you kind of give us a quick overview on what you're seeing given the Ukraine and Russian war right now in oil? Although we've seen, obviously, a pullback in prices across energy and metals, what we're seeing is, you know, we still have a structural supply deficit across the entire, you know, base industrial and energy sector. So the markets are extremely tight right now, even though we've seen this, you know, almost 30% pullback, um, especially in the metals right now. Moving forward, you know, I think that the Fed is going to have a very large problem trying to solve a supply side deficit by raising rates. I mean, I understand that they're going to try to destroy demand, but because of the enormity of the deficit, I think that it would be next to impossible to completely um, move the needle really on the demand side because we're really not seeing any kind of demand destruction right now and prices are sky high. Um, you know, we haven't even seen China come back to the market yet, right? We have the People's Party Congress at the end of October. He is not going to want to have his whole country locked down at that point for his quote unquote election. So, you know, we have that coming into the markets. So I think we're still set to see commodity, higher commodity prices despite all of these, these rate hikes. Even though I know that we're seeing signs of slowing, say, in the housing market, and that will affect the commodities market in general. But globally, we're just not seeing it. So, Tracy, you know, the, the Biden administration still dumping all sorts of oil out of the strategic petroleum reserve. And that's got to end, obviously. That's sort of a short-term sugar high. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I, how much lower do you think they're... I mean, how is that a big deal? I mean, 20 million here, 20 million Yeah, there, I mean, obviously... The, but that ends, right? That ends at some point, right? I mean, it, it does. We hit the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, at some point. So, yes, 200 million barrels is, is a big deal. And the thing that I keep trying to express is that fact that we're not we have high ga gas gasoline prices right now yes but 
we are not in a crisis. We're, you know, we are not near where Europe is right now. The problem is going to come when we are in that sort of crisis and we do have gas lines and we do have gas rationing and we don't have a reserve anymore because we drained it all for no reason. Um, and that's kind of my argument against that. I mean, the strategic reserve was built in the 1970s due to the oil crisis, the Iran oil embargo. And that was so that we would never be in that position again. And so to drain it right now, uh, for no reason, except for high gas prices, which is not a crisis, um, it, that puts us in a very vulnerable position moving forward when we are looking at an energy crisis in Europe, which could very well spread to the United States. Yeah, I saw someone tweeted out that they should just change the name. It's no longer the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now it's just the Petroleum Reserve. There's nothing about it. <laughs> exactly. So kind of so given that backdrop of Europe versus the states, I'm going to I'm going to pitch it to Aisha here next. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so given this backdrop of Europe versus America and the structural geez, I cannot speak, y'all. Given the structural <laughs> supply side problems at the moment, what are you seeing? Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, no, look, I'm with Tracy on this. I think, you know, we haven't seen peak demand as yet. Um, uh, we were just on another show a little while ago and we were just talking about this. And, you know, she, she says it right. I mean, we haven't seen uh, China come back as yet at all. Um, and we were looking. So my estimate for next year was about 100 million barrels. But now I'm seeing people are saying that it should be at about 130 million barrels. And, you know, this is, this is a big difference. Now, in terms of oil production in the Middle East, something else I was saying earlier is that, um, and I am from the Middle East, right? So um, we do have enough oil to pump right now. Um, although most people say that we don't, but there are we have our strategic reserves as well in the ground and otherwise. But um, the way our budgets are, uh, you know, they're, they're keyed off a certain price. And we'd love to see oil above $100 a barrel any day of the week because this gives us surplus to, you know, reinvest and do various other things. Um, and in fact, support the economies here because we are all driven economies. And um, the other thing I was saying is, um, you know, the OPEC is a cartel and they will always behave like a cartel. So regardless of whether you are asking them for oil or you're not asking them for oil, they will do what they have to do because um, it's more important for them to support the economies versus, you know, supporting the whole world. And um, in fact, I do think that we will see um, higher oil prices for longer, just as Tracy said. Sven, do you have any comments there? I figured you might have something to say. I, I do. <laughs> Sorry, I was. <laughs> You're fine. I tried to sneak in a dinner before the uh, Fed announcement. I, I actually wanted to say something about the ECB briefly because this is actually all impacting all of us, and that is the impact on the relativity and the central bank expectations. That's why we had that dollar spike for a while because the ECB was so terribly slow and lagging. I'm just putting up the, the main uh, dollar chart on the 
on my Twitter feed real quick so you can see it. And technically, it was absolutely quite beautiful, the rejection that we saw now that the ECB has joined the rate hike club, so to speak. Obviously, they're still woefully behind. The issue is Europe is a much greater risk of recession than the U.S. in in the sense that we have this mess with energy prices, natural gas, and, and it's it's a big political problem as long as we don't have a resolution to the Ukraine-Russia situation. So to the extent that they find themselves, again, limited in following through on rate hikes, then that may put more pressure on the dollar, which would be bad for U.S. equities. At the same time, if they actually do follow through aggressively and the Fed actually slows down, that could push the dollar down quite a bit because it's still very much over bought on a monthly basis and so i think from an equity trading perspective we just need to keep an eye on that as well as it pertains to the high correlation that we have between the dollar and the s p at this point so we've got the report coming out in about two minutes here two minutes until fomc anybody have any last guesses for rate hikes are we still thinking 75 is the target or will we get a sneaky 100 in there I think 100. They're gonna. They want it. They need to get it up quick before we're officially in a recession. Anybody disagree with that? Should... I know a lot of folks have been thinking 75. If they do 100, will it be a dovish 100 with uh, Powell in the press conference, maybe trying to taper expectations a little bit? I'm just putting that out as this question. Uh, to me, a dovish 100 sounds like an oxymoron, or or just a moron. <laughs> Can you expand on that a little? Yeah, I'm just I saying, like how, like under what scenario is a hundred basis point hike, uh, a do, you know, dovish? I, I just, I don't. That doesn't make that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Look, I, well, I, I mean, said it before. I, I can I can see where Sven's coming from. From that, they do a hundred, and then they say we're going to pause and just sort of see how the market digests this. I mean, I, can I don't. See yeah, but in like a, I don't. Why, why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, yeah, they, they're, yeah. they're not in a position to kind of have that for that kind of foresight. Well, they did. Yeah, well, so I mean, they the, they the hiked seventy five. So it doesn't matter. When does the Fed have any foresight? They're, they've been hugely wrong on everything for, for for over a decade. So, I mean, who knows what they do? They're, they're clueless. Well, it, did it looks 75. like it is 75. It looks like it is 75. So I guess we can just kind of continue this panel-wide discussion. I love this discourse so much, everyone. Thank you. What, what does it mean? What's the 75 mean for us? What's it mean for the markets? At this point, it's completely priced, and it's all about Powell's press conference and his language uh, that he will be – uh, closely touched on. So I think the market right now is just going to hang tight here until he speaks. After seeing this, Mr. Blonde, can you take it from here? What are you What are you thinking now? No, I mean I think it's I think it's pretty consistent with what a lot of what we talked about. I, mean, I think seventy five. It sound, it seems like they repeated their you know um, focus on inflation rather than giving any nod to some of the weaker uh, growth numbers that we've seen. Um, it was a unanimous um, seventy five. So nobody was voting for a hundred. Uh, or voting for 50 so they you know presumably agree i i mean i i think that it's pretty consistent with um i mean look i i, I agree with whoever just said i mean a lot will come down to the press conference and and how jay pal mumbles through you know um the delivery of this um i my guess is that they don't really give us a lot on um forward guidance meaning i don't think that they're going to commit uh, to anything in particular, I think the focus is going to be we're going to continue to fight inflation until it's you know at a um, at a pace and level that we're comfortable with, and we're not there today. 
And if that means that we have to hike 75 in September, so be it. If that means we have to hike 50 in September, so be it. It sort of is, you know, we'll decide that um, at the next meeting as opposed to pre-committing to anything today uh, when so far their ability to forecast uh, where we be at this point has proven to be um, challenged at best. But, you know, Sven Sven made a good point, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes ago, where a lot of the inflation we're seeing is out of the control of the Fed. And the last time, Powell testified in front of the Senate, a lot of the senators were hitting him up on that, too, saying, you know, can you control oil prices? Can you control food prices? You know, and the, the, and Powell said, no, us raising rates ain't going to control things like that. And so you're already seeing the political pressure starting to build of why are we continuing to raise rates to fight inflation when what the Fed can do doesn't really have much impact on food prices and energy prices and, you know, I, I think that's what Sven was saying a little bit ago. I'll let him say it in his own words. Uh, but you're gonna, I think you're going to start seeing that narrative more and more from the political sphere to start pushing back against the Fed on continuing to raise rates when so much of the inflation's in regions that the Fed doesn't impact. Just my opinion. Yeah, and look at uh, Elizabeth Warren came out and she, I think she beat Powell up pretty hard last time. And uh, the you know whether where we are politically doesn't doesn't really matter. It's just observational here to say that political pressure is going to increase on the Fed. And uh, Powell has shown himself to be listening to political pressure. We've seen that before as well in 2018, 2019. So I wouldn't put anything past anyone at this point. And I think again, uh, to the extent that you see a sizable relief in inflation data, which none of us can really predict, although I can say there's key rollovers in, in, in not only commodities, but you know even supply chains, we're seeing a massive reduction in prices. Uh, all this will filter through. And you know the data that we're seeing in June is lagging, right? So we're, we're just going to have to wait and see how this data evolves. And we'll see how the Fed reacts to it. And of course, economic data, absolutely key. Because if this slowdown continues to accelerate into the into the late summer right before the midterms you know politically speaking you're not going to get reelected with a recession right no they don't want to see this that's why we see all this recession denial right now and definitional wordsmithing and, and so forth there, there are political agendas at play and we, we cannot ignore that either I, i'm going to agree with both sven and silver and that there's going to be a lot of political posturing saying that the Fed can't do anything about supply and so you know they should not be hiking rates but the Fed has actually already pushed back against this idea uh, so as I mentioned earlier Governor Waller pointedly said in his recent speech that their goal was price stability and it's not that you know if it's caused by supply shocks they don't have to do anything their goal was price stability period so that's the Fed pushing back against the uh, that particular kind of narrative and I, I would also remind everyone that when the Fed was hiking rates, we saw, you know, at least in the paper markets, the commodity markets kind of basically took a dump. So it, it does do something. Now, I understand the paper is not the same as the physical, but they're still connected. And it did seem to have an effect on inflation, or well, commodity inflation, at least. How are you thinking now with the 75, Christian? What's your initial reaction? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, thank, thank you, by the way. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing right now in the market, there's not much market reaction because, you know, this is exactly what the market was pricing in was 75 basis points. You know, the Fed fund futures don't lie. Um, that is what the bond market was pricing in. Um, next, uh, I think which was already said is uh, we've got 2.30, which is the Fed conference and, uh, you know, the press conference, which could be where there, we might get some new information. Um, you know, we'll see if, you know, at some point in these press conferences, somebody usually has a pretty good question. Um, and then also we always see these whipsaw price action moves too. you know, the first move isn't always the, um, the direction that we could, you know, end up going by the end of the day. Uh, because of that press conference is actually, you know, in my opinion, more important, you know, considering that, you know, the uh, the rate was exactly what what the market was expecting um, and what the market was pricing in. So I think what we're seeing is actually a very muted reaction. Um, it's probably because it came out exactly as we thought. I mean, every time before this, I mean, I've seen futures uh, S&P futures chopping up and down, NASDAQ futures chopping up and down. But today's price reaction seems to be a little muted. But as I speak, I see it drop a little bit more. Um, I think we'll have to wait for the press conference. I think something that I'm looking out for is whether the Fed actually acknowledges that, you know, the consumer is now weak. We're heading into a recession. I mean, all the usual problems that we are actually seeing Um I'd like to see them acknowledge some of it because all they've been saying is the consumer is extremely strong and, you know, um, unemployment is extremely strong. But and, and while it is, we know we're moving the other way. And so some acknowledgement from Powell would be nice. And perhaps um, somebody out there will ask the question. So let's see how he reacts to that. And I always love these press conferences. They're really, really good. Given the 75 BPS hike, just a few months ago, the kind of the general consensus was that 75 would never happen. Here we've had it a couple times. Does that does that kind of lower your faith in the Fed? Is that something that we should be concerned about? Given I think just two months ago, actually, they said J-Pow said, you know, no 75 BPS hike. It's not going to happen. And now it's happened, what, two or three times? I well, think, oh, could, I saw someone else on mute. You can go for uh, I think if you look back at his comments, I think, didn't he also say, we're not even, we're not even going to think about thinking about raising rates till 2024? I mean, come on, you can't really trust anything the Fed says. Yeah, I just say, I, I, I'm actually somewhat encouraged by it. I, I don't like when they say we're not considering raising 75 basis points, because how do you know what the data is going to look like in a month? And, and, and the data in a month is going to is going to be the determinant of, of, of if you're supposed to hike 75 basis points or not. So they always like to say they're data driven. And and to me, and, and this goes back to that point of job owning of saying we're and, and that's fun made very, very acutely where they say a million things to, to try to, to push credit markets where they're trying to go on their own to try to get credit markets to do the work for them. I trust the Fed less what they say than a drunk at a bar. Well, you I guess are. it depends on what the drunk is. I mean, <laughs> fair enough. But look, at the end of the day, it's it's about managing these markets. So that's why I came back to come back to what I said earlier. These incessant speeches, it's, it's almost micromanaging. And as soon as anything goes out of line, you find a fit speaker that's going to reverse that. So be clear, these markets are actively managed by this committee. Okay? And so they're they're whatever they say, 
make may make sense for them to say in terms of managing markets at a given time but don't be surprised if their views suddenly change at some point okay i'm not saying today i'm not saying next month obviously there's no fed meeting next month but you know the past experience and i hope everybody's been paying attention these last 15 years the past experience shows that especially if you look at the for example their fed funds rate projections not a single one of these has come to fruition since they were first published after the financial crisis even in 2018 you know they were still looking at the rate hikes and then obviously they went into to rate cuts so i think everybody needs to be approaching this with some level of caution in terms of what they say and what they will actually end up doing in time yeah i it, it, it as soon as you see it's like 2018, what Sven was just talking about, referring to. They can project and talk whatever they want, but if the data gets really bad, you know, in terms of mortgages or housing starts or unemployment, let's say the unemployment rate starts, you know, all these job, you know, layoffs that we've been seeing from individual companies, if this actually starts showing up in the official unemployment numbers and it starts tickling, trickling higher to 4%, 5%, Ah, this, this it's over. The Fed's not raising anything. I don't care what they've said two months ago. They're not. They're they're going to stop in a heartbeat and turn on a dime, or they're going to change the definition of unemployment to be, you know, temporarily on vacation. That's or, you know what they're going to do something different. They cut rates three times in 2019 with unemployment at 3.6 percent. Okay, so the, the the mandate thing is is is. Is a moving target. So I said in 74, 80, 82, they cut rates while CPI was still above 10%. So yes, it's a problem. It's it's going to continue to be a problem. And frankly, if this energy situation with Ukraine uh, does not improve over the next uh, few months, then yes, it's a, it's a major problem for Europe. It's a major problem for the world. And yes, so there is, there is I, I even acknowledge the possibility if they pause and then it leads to a major equity rally that that may end up them being a policy mistake and it implodes in 23. Perfectly aware of that as well. Um, I'm just, just generally saying, you know, whatever they say, don't take it as gospel. It, it, it's They're stating it because they set themselves on a path. They want to be predictable in that sense, uh, but they will flip when when they see it's the right thing. And, that, and probably, just based on history, you know, once we are in a recession, they will flip. It doesn't matter where inflation is at that point. That's that's what the history says. Ryan, we're just kind of talking about initial reactions and kind of, you know, faith in the Fed regarding the rate hikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, curious about your uh, your initial reactions here and your response to the hike. It's very interesting. I'm surprised they came in so dovishly. Full transparency. I was expecting a full 100% DPS hike just based off of the CPI month over month jump as well as the year over year jump. Last time, we didn't have as violent of a year over year jump when Powell came in super hawkish with the 75 basis point hike. So I was expecting, hey, he's going to parallel that move again with 100 basis point. But it looks like he decided not to do it. And I think it's more of a political move than a Fed move here because they're not trying to shake the markets up. They want to have the markets have some time to recover summer and then maybe go back to hawkish mode later this year again into September. But it's very interesting to see what they're doing here um, with these rate hikes because it has, we have to see how effective they're going to be. The biggest reason, that the only reason I'd imagine that they didn't go as hawkish as they should have 
was due to the fact that oil and gas prices have been coming down for six weeks in a row so far. So that's the main reason that I see. Maybe they looked at some recent data and they decided to run with that versus in the past where they would only go with the present data that they had from just CPI or PCE. So it's very interesting to see what they did here. But again, um, it's going to be an, it's going to make for a very interesting trading summer because right now we have to realize that we're not going to get any more of these rate hikes till September. It's not it's no more of these big events. The only real big market shaking events will be the uh, CPI data, which based off of it moving so closely with the price of uh, fuel and oil, uh, essentially one to one now, uh, with it coming down six weeks in a month, down to about four four point five or four point five six average per gallon across the states. I think that next CPI is going to be much better. It's going to come in lower. And then we don't have enough data right now for me to speak on September's. But it's going to be very interesting to see how this is all going to be playing out in the next few months. But I mean, overall, as someone who people like markets that move up more than they like markets that come down. So I'm happy for the overall people that like to see their stocks and portfolios recover if the market reacts positively to this because it was what was quote unquote expected. But again, we have to realize that this is still a 75 basis point rate hike, which means all of the rates will be going up, which means it's going to be harder for companies to borrow money, uh, raise money. And it's still a negative thing across the board because all these companies have to be reevaluated again at these rates. So it's interesting to see overall. But I mean, I'm glad it wasn't 100 BPS. I'll say that. So I'm going to pivot this back to you, Joseph. With the hearing coming up in about 14 minutes here, I want to know what your opinion is on how the Fed will speak about this and kind of the communication to credit markets. Yeah, so I, I agree with um, what Sven and Silver were saying. In that, so Powell has a history of, of being, I guess, flexible and pivoting, especially in 2019. His words for that now are humble and nimble. So um, I, I suspect that going forward, he's probably not going to give a lot of hard guidance like he had recently. So what's set in stone is that he wants to get to about, let's say, 3.5% by the end of this year. And beyond that, it's, it's really not clear. And I think what the market will be focused on is how his guidance for next year, if any, will be. Particularly, they will infer that by how he treats the weak economic data that we've been having so far. Is he really concerned about a recession? And does he take that into account in setting his policy when he has to juggle high inflation? Um, so I think that's what I would be looking for and what the market will be fully attentive to. So from here to December, that's not much is going to happen. Sure, we maybe go 75 or 50 in September. But, you know, that doesn't really make a difference. It's really, I think, the path beyond next year that that that's really more important and worth listening to. Yeah, I mean, look, the Fed has also a history on not ever calling a recession in advance or even copying to the risk of it. I mean, think back to 2008, Bernanke, Adam and no recession in sight, uh, right before the global financial crisis. And so the, the method that we're seeing right now with recession not as a base case is also political. They don't want to scare markets. They, you know, that, that That's not something, you know, it, become, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. And that's, that's a bit of a danger as, as well because you get again into this credibility issue of you seeing this data and, and yet at the same time, you know, they're insisting on, on no recession. It's a bit method acting here as as well. So I, I would be very surprised 
uh, if Powell uh, would acknowledge, he may acknowledge, okay, we're seeing some slowing and, and so forth, but, you know, they're going to focus again on the strong labor market because that's their ace card here to say there's no no recession inside. Yellen is coming out tomorrow as well. I think she's going to say something very similar. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not going to give any hints on, on that. They, they'll admit the recession once we're, once the data makes it very clear that we're we're in it. Yeah, that's actually a great segue for me, and, and I'll be super quick. Um, and, and it was talk. I think Sven, you said that you said it, and I want to give whoever said it credit because it was a great point of demand side inflation versus supply side inflation, and how the Federal Reserve has wonderful tools in their toolkit to destroy demand, to create a reverse wealth effect, to make consumer confidence be near cycle lows. Um, but 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 at at the exact same time. And in this press conference, the reason that they're trying to combat what's what's more so supply side based inflation at this point is because they still see consumer demand as frothy. That That's the word that they used in the last conference. So that's really what's giving them permission to kind of combat supply side inflation because they're trying to destroy demand to give supply chains a, ch a chance to catch up and take a breather. And, and now we've seen oh, my dogs are barking. So let me close the door super quickly. Um, but but we've seen Walmart and Target with that that famous bullwhip effect, and that that's the term we've all gotten to know and love. Have large inventory gluts and, and large markdowns, and and also I just referenced consumer confidence that the University of Michigan releases near cycle lows. So it's hard to see. And Ayesha, you you talked about this too, which I wholeheartedly agree with. How this strong consumer lasts that much longer, and and we see cracks deepening really in signs intensifying every single week. Um, so just wanted to make that point before the conference that I really. I'm 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 waiting to hear if that word frothy uh, is used again to describe consumer demand, or if that's removed from the Fed's vocabulary. So um, it, it it won't be a a black or white if they don't say it. Uh, I'll I'll make a different conclusion. I'll be using much, a lot of other context, but that word was really important to me last time, and 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 just wanted to bring that up. And I'll pass the mic to our smarter speakers. I'm just going to pop this right open to the entire panel. Looks like the hearing will start in about nine minutes here. Does anybody have any comments to speak on, you know, equities, like kind of what happened with, you know, Walmart shop, et cetera? Mr. Blonde, do you have any thoughts there? Uh, I mean, not anything really that I would consider to be sort of new and, and super insightful. I mean, I think it's a function of, you know, we we overstimulated, which led to overproduction or sorry, led to over demand, which, you know, resulted in overproduction, leading companies to be over inventoried. Uh, at a time when you're in the face of demand destruction, which you know kind of shifted, um, you know the trajectory of 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 sales for a bunch of com uh, companies. I mean, I think what Walmart said was really just a continuation of what they said in the first quarter, uh, and I think it just it tells us that that issue is not yet resolved, which is they have too much stuff relative to uh, the purchasing power of of households. I mean, all of this despite um, two things. One is if you guys recall. In the fourth quarter of last year, all anybody wanted to talk about was how many ships were stacked up in Long Beach, you know, acting like we had some big like supply bottleneck problem and we weren't going to have enough stuff to buy. Well, that certainly doesn't seem to be the case because now we have more than enough stuff to buy. Um, you know, I think the other, um, you know, false narrative was around, you know, excess savings on the part of, you know, household balance sheets. I mean, if everybody had so much excess savings, then presumably Walmart and Target and other retailers wouldn't have uh, as much excess inventory um, that they do today. So I don't know. I mean, I, look, I think the, the inventory problem was one that was was building, um, you know, from the fourth quarter of last year. And I think what we're seeing is is now being realized in hard data and obviously the the impact that it has on companies like Walmart 
Um, and there'll be more department stores and, and elsewhere will have similar problems. So I'm going to kick her over to Tracy here. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, what's been discussed so far regarding like demand destruction, inventory gluttony? Again, you know, we're, we're just not seeing demand destruction, regardless of how many times the Fed's going to hike. Uh, I mean, even if you look, we had 75 base points hike and oil actually rallied, rallied on that. And so I think you have to, I think you have to s- s- stop looking at this market like you used to look at this market because this is the, one of the very first times, or at least <clears throat> in the last 50 years, that we've actually seen a structural supply deficit. And the Fed just can't fix that. Even with trying to you know, um, create demand destruction via rate hikes we're just not seeing it because a lot of this demand is inelastic and people don't like to hear that but that's really the truth i mean people still need to go to work people still turn on their air conditioning people still turn on their heat people still you know they use all all of this energy to survive so uh you know this is a very unique situation that we've been in over the last you know well since 50 years ago um so I think you just need to take everything with a grain of salt and look at this market a little bit differently than perhaps we've been used to seeing. So I'm just going to keep this open to the panel, but Christian, do you have any comments regarding the structural supply deficits and what other speakers have said so far? Uh, well, first of all, I, what Tracy said was was spot on uh, regarding the last question. Um, supply deficits... Um, I'm not sure I, I understand the question, but, you know, I, I mean, I, I think what we're experiencing, too, and seeing, you know, what Walmart reported this week, because I think you a couple of questions ago, you asked about equities and sorry, I'm multitasking. But, um, you know, I, I think it's very interesting what's going on with the consumer. Right. And I, I mean, I don't think really that there is demand destruction um, either. I, I think it really depends on how the consumer is situated. There's going to there, there are some consumers that are really getting pinched right now by the by the um the increase in gas prices and and some and also the inflation costs in the in the supermarkets and the stores um but that's not every consumer you know there's a lot of consumers that are that are sitting fine right now you know maybe they're upset a bit because this because their stocks aren't going up and their 401ks aren't going up as much but you know i think that you've got different consumers that are feeling different things right now and you know where i you know where I live is you know in New York City, and you're just not seeing any sort of slowdown whatsoever in terms of you know either you know what the um, what the individual is doing in, in in and around New York City and the tourism. You know, there's a lot of tourists. There's a lot more tourists than I've seen you know the last couple of years in New York City. So you know that will we'll see if that changes. But um, you know, I think it's important to kind of. Um, you know, not get so tuned into to what the, you know, what the headlines are and so forth. And, um, you know, make sure that you, you've got some perspective just to realize that it's, it's not horrible out there, um, you know, depending on what group you're in. And, and again, it's unfortunate for certain, for certain consumers who are really feeling, um, you know, the, the pain right now. But I don't think that's, that's what 
that that is what everyone is feeling. So sorry if that's a little bit off topic, but I, I just wanted to you know talk about that as well as what we're seeing in the equity market. Uh, to follow up with, I think what Christian was saying, if you look at the earnings reports for let's say American Express or Bank of America, the consumer spending is very strong. So Amex just came out and said that they had record members spending. The revenue was up 30% year over year. So there, there are segments of the economy that, you know, are, are doing all right. So it's, it's hard to get a big macro picture, but these big banks and payment processors, they're plugged into the economy more so than any anecdotal data. And their data says that the consumer is doing okay. Okay, with that, um, happy Fed Day. Everybody listening, follow the speakers you've listened to today. They are invaluable folks in this space. Tons of information, always, always educating, always being helpful. I'm curious on your guys' thoughts, especially on his comments that he said multiple times there that we are not in, in or excuse me, we're not in a recession right now. Do you agree with that? That was very funny. It was every time uh, one of the reporters said the word recession, he could just take a shot and by now he'd be just blackout drunk. Uh, he avoided that like a pro. Um, it, it, they, he finally admitted, he finally said that he doesn't think we're in a recession. But I mean, all the data is pointing to all the data in every economics textbook, even the White House tried to redefine the recession. But all the textbooks that I was looking at the other day, my old economics classes, it was all the two, the two negative GDP readings. However, though, he is correct that sometimes they do come back and they re, um, they revise GDP readings because that's because one thing we have to remember is we get two preliminary ones and then we get a third one. Um, and really in September is, I, I think, it, I, I forgot what his name was. He's not on the panel anymore. He was mentioning that the Fed won't admit that we're in a recession until for a little bit later. And I think when we finally get that final Q2 reading in September, that's when the Fed will have to admit that we're in a recession and then that'll be on the heels of the next FOMC. So I think it's going to be really interesting there, but he did do a masterful job of avoiding it. And he kept propping up the labor market there. But I mean, it's j being j didn't said a lot, but didn't say much. Beautiful. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks for joining us here at the end, man. What do you got? You can say anything you want, man. Really open to your perspective here. Hey, Hey guys, thanks for having me in. Um, so I'm no Fed expert, but I do speak to a couple and I think that their viewpoint was, on the release, the unanimity, or I guess the, cons- the consensus view that 75 basis points, they saw that as somewhat hawkish. Um, they were expecting Powell. They said there were two things to look for in the comments, whether he would admit that you know, recession was likely. He didn't. Um, so they saw that as hawkish. Um, however, they did say that, you know, him saying at some point rates will go up or, or, or come back down. Um, that was a bit dovish. But I wanted to get in before, I guess, before the meeting, because I think there's some key things to look at, right? So clearly what he's looking for is a slowdown in overall activity. Um, And I think that the way that happens is um, you get inflation moderation through demand destruction via households who can no longer afford price increases. And I think the way to do that is is three-pronged, via credit, via wages, um, uh, and via wealth. And if you look at those three dynamics right now, you have credit credit growth at near an all-time high, wage growth um, at a record high, and wealth at an all-time high. So it just seems to me like if they're really focused on fighting inflation, which it seems like he said they are, um, to really get things under control, they are looking for actually negative economic data points. Um, And clearly since the last meeting, one of the reporters said things have tightened. That's not true. If you look at the 310 or 
30-year bond, like since the last meeting, um, things have loosened. Uh, yields have gone down. So it seems to me like they're going to have to be more aggressive. Um, just just my, my take, if, if, if that's helpful. So he did mention during the speech that he expects, you know, the potential for more unusually high rate hikes. Do you think then, based on what you just said, we are looking at a potential 100 in the near future? Or do you think it'll stick to 75? I can't say whether it's going to be 100 or 75. Um, but what I will say is the, the Fed whispers I've spoken to, they were 100% confident it was 75. And when I told them there were guys out there saying 100, they said that was utterly ridiculous. Um, and they said to look for comments, you know, in this most recent, uh, I guess, chat from, from Powell on what he was doing for the balance sheet. It looks like he said he's going to be more aggressive with respect to reducing the balance sheet. And I think some people may have gotten uh, a bit ahead of their skis, if you will, on the balance sheet, because keep in mind, the MBS bonds take three months to basically work out. So the balance sheet reduction is not going to be like, you know, as, as steady and non-lumpy as people expect. So I think people may be surprised. The bulls may be surprised negatively in, in future balance sheet reductions. So just to open it up to both of you real quick before we let everybody off the hook of the space here, they've been here for a couple of hours now, but I did want to pick both of your brains. Whoever wants to answer first, feel free. But based on everything that we now know with the release of the FOMC, with the hearing, with what you both just said, J-Pow said during, that, during the questions that we do appear on track, depending on how things go moving forward, to get down to that 2% inflation goal. Do you agree with that? Are we actually on track to get down to 2% any time in the near future at all? Yeah, I, I think absolutely not. Um, uh, again, to get to 2% inflation, you need credit growth to slow significantly. Uh, we're looking at record year-over-year credit growth. Um, you, need, you need wage growth uh, to slow significantly. At 6.7%, you're looking at historically high wage growth, and wealth is sitting at an all-time high. And in addition to that, again, um, you know, since the last meeting, yields have fallen, meaning uh, credit conditions have loosened, not tightened. So I think they need to be much more aggressive in hitting 2%. So them continuing to focus on 2% would suggest, in my view, uh, that they're going to be getting uh, more aggressive. Yeah, I have to agree there with Gordon. I don't think we're anywhere near on track against 2%, especially with what's going on in the markets. Gordon's hit the, hit the points with nails right on the head. I discussed this in a video that I put out earlier, too. It's like the Fed keeps saying we're going to get to 2%. The Fed keeps saying it's going to be a soft landing. It's going to be a soft landing. But then when you go and look at uh, the New York Fed or the Atlanta Fed and the data they're putting out, the New York Fed put out a piece in May. I did a full video on it. I posted it on my uh, page as well that there's an 80% chance of a hard landing. And then there's very little chance of us getting to 2% very quickly. Uh, I think what's going to happen is either they're going to push their – uh, date for the 2% out farther, or they're going to come back and revise and say, hey, we're going to be aiming for 4% now versus 2%, and then later on we'll tackle 2% because maybe we'll start seeing negative negative economic negative economic impacts in the markets. But, I mean, we are nowhere on track to get to 2%. I mean, everything is just raging still. Yeah, and one last thing I'll say, Ryan, and, and, and thanks for that, and I, I agree 100%, but you know, if you look at nominal spending, uh, which is, again, fueled by wealth, wages, and credit, it's still growing at an accelerated clip. So it's clear that there's a way to accommodate it. So I actually agree, Ryan, that the Fed whisperer I spoke to said that they might take up um, their neutral rate. Clearly, they didn't do that this meeting, but I think that's in play uh, near term based on the Fed whisperer I speak to. 
Yeah, I agree 100% with you. I think that the big, the other thing that we didn't get this this meeting that we'll probably see the impact and effect of is we didn't get a uh, table of economic projections that we get one every other meeting. But what happens is you get the you get the meeting minutes the following month, which has some sort has like it in a text format of some degree. We saw the impact of that two meetings ago when the Fed meeting minutes came out. And we saw that they had in those meetings said that they're going to be aiming for a higher Fed rate by the end of the year. And I think we might even see that again, because I think what's happening right now is they want the markets to kind of melt up into the summer, let people cool up with it. But what could happen negatively is if CPI numbers, or in their case, they keep saying they look at PCE, if PCE keeps coming higher and higher in September, they're going to have to come in even more hawkish. And we might see that um, that 100 BPS or another few 75 BPS rate hikes to kind of get there, but they're nowhere near that 2% inflation rate or on, on par for 2% inflation. I think that was just something they put out there. Didn't expect that they would happen. Plus, we have to take into account the whole Russia situation, which ran up uh, energy prices significantly. Um, we were Energy prices were going up, but that added fuel to the fire. And I, I feel like they set a target where they're kind of got their feet stuck in the sand with it. Beautiful. Thank you guys both so much. I think that's a good stopping point for us. Thank you, everybody who came to listen. If you're not following the array of speakers we've had, you absolutely should. Gordon, thanks for coming in to close us out, as well as you, Ryan. For those of you that missed or came in late, this is recorded both here on Twitter. It'll be on Unusual Whale's main page on the same posts that he announced in this space, as well as the Unusual Whale's Twitch, twitch.tv slash unusualwhales. This will be the last one of the week for us. We'll be back again next week, I believe, for an oil and gas discussion. Thanks again, everybody, for coming. Follow everybody you saw up here. Missing out on a lot of info by not doing so. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks again, everybody. <laughs>